Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Welcome to Streets Ahead, a new podcast about livable neighborhoods, walking, cycling, and people-friendly streets. I'm Ned Bolting. I'm Adam Tranter. And I'm Laura Laker. And welcome to this, our third episode. Now, we wanted to learn more about the increasing number of walking and cycling commissioners in the UK. So, we went to the obvious source and we have got Chris Boardman with us. He's on a mission to make Greater Manchester, as I'm sure you know, a walking and cycling haven through their 1,800-mile B network. He is also my former colleague when working on the Tour de France with ITV and he's an eloquent advocate, it says here in the script I've been handed, for cycling in all forms and he's an all-round decent bloke. Hello, Chris. How's um, how's lockdown treating you? Good afternoon. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm being being an introvert, I've adapted to it exceptionally well. Um, the only fly in the ointment is that I've had my grandchildren, daughter, and her family here for the last five weeks, and so there's ten of us, um, and that's got quite challenging. Uh, but we, I think we've adapted well. As has, I have to say, look what looks like the rest of the world. Yeah. Have you got the dogs with you as well? The beagles? Are they still part of your family? No, thanks, Ned. The beagle's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't. That's got off to a rather awkward. Nice. No, no, Cookie's gone. And then I said, I'll never have another dog again. And uh, and then Sally bought two dogs. So we've now got Columba Spaniels instead which are slightly Excellent. less mental and less greedy than beagles. Fair dues, fair dues. Now, listen, Chris, I know you very well. Adam and Laura also uh, know you extremely well. There may be some podcast listeners who don't realise that you have had, well, you're kind of in the sixth iteration of your career, really, aren't you? If you start whoa, with whoa, car, Be careful huh? bandying around words like career. I just bump into <laughs> stuff and uh, I go, that's good stuff. Um so, yeah, I think it's just evolved, hasn't it, really? It all seems to have orbited around the bicycle, whether I like it or not. Well, apart from a little spell doing um, carpentry back in the day before you even got involved with bicycles. That's true. I used to work in Peter's Furniture Emporium in Higher Tranmere, um, and I used to ride there on a bicycle, so there's a connection. There we go. Yep. And then, of course, the racing thing happened with its gold medals and world uh, records, etc. Then you did your TV thing. Then you launched a very successful bike brand with which you're still associated by dint of your name on the frames, etc. Um, but it is this kind of uh, this advocacy and this role as a commissioner for which a lot of people have got to know you uh, um, recently. What, what does that actually involve your job, Chris? I remember you telling me to your kind of horror occasionally having to put on a tie and a suit and stuff like that it's a proper yeah job, ties and suits but what we quickly got over that bit i think um i think it's a coordinating role really i think one thing i learned watching uh, andrew gilligan who was the cycling commissioner in london uh, under boris's stewardship is that you can only do it if the boss wants to do it 
Um, and so I took advice before agreeing with Andy Burnham to take on the role in Greater Manchester. Um, and the two pieces of advice I was giving is you've got to be speaking for the boss uh, and you've got to have some form of control of the cash, uh, which is what I asked for and what I was promptly given, at which point I thought, oh, shit, going to have to do it now, uh, which was, was uh, quite scary because for years advocating for, for bikes just to be used as a just as an excellent tool for getting around uh, and pushing politicians and saying what people should be doing. Uh, suddenly somebody said, well, go on then. Um, and so it's it's the scariest thing I've done. It certainly outstrips uh, trying to get Olympic medals, I think. Um, and I, it's the most important thing I've ever been involved with. And, and it's the only thing that's kept me awake at night for 20 years. And I think you've learned, Chris, that even with the boss behind you, it's a, it's a challenge, isn't it? Because, of course, Andy Burnham doesn't sort of run all the roads. No, that's a good point, and even less so than London, that all of the, the roads are run by each of the 10 Manchester district or greater Manchester districts. Uh, they control everything. And the mayor himself is a convening force. He has some powers. Um, I think the advantage we've got is he was able to take some cash from government and ring fence it and say, this is for this topic. And he's going to decide what standard it needs to be and who gets it and who doesn't. Um, and then we, we did, it was very collaborative. I mean, it sounds very dictatorial, but it wasn't at all uh, for the reasons that you've just outlined. People have got to want to go on this journey. And I think the, the two the two best bits, I think, that, that managed to sneak in at the start from other life lessons were be able to say to people, listen, if you don't want to do it, let's not do it. And they weren't expecting that there. Every every person I involved was expecting somebody fanatical and saying, we've got to do it. And I said, listen, if you don't want to do it, let's not do it. But we're not wasting money on doing it badly. Entirely up to you. Uh, and the other was, as was um, I'd be perfectly happy to get the sack. So it allowed me to say things that perhaps other people can't. So perhaps Andy Birdman, who, who has got to be collegial, he's got to work with people, he can't take those kind of risks. But I'm not interested in keeping the job. I want to get a job done. So if I can't get the job done, I'd rather go and do something else. And I, that, that was very, very helpful. As far as the role of commissioners go, those rules at the start are really important because you can't force people to do this. So the role should be to implement something they already want to do. Because if you're coming in to persuade them to do it, it's just too hard. You're fighting in too many directions. Has there been, uh, I guess, an elephant, uh, an elephant, uh, an element, or has there been an element of explanation? Exp- <laughs> Sorry, I've just lost it. Um, I thought it was an excellent <laughs> line of questioning, Adam. Has <laughs> there been an elephant? There's always an elephant in the room, Adam. I got halfway between <laughs> elephant in the room and element, but there we go. We can work right. it in. We can work it in. Keep going. <laughs> um, I'll just I'll cut this. I'm in, I'm in charge. Um, no, you oh. won't. No, you won't. No, you won't. <laughs> uh, you talk about persuasion, but uh, and and that is obviously taking up a lot of energy. But is there is there an element of having to do that with councils who who ultimately control the control the road network? Some people don't know what they don't know, I guess, and and I guess the difference is between people that can see the vision and people that potentially can't. So, how much of your time is trying to you know inform people, uh, I guess, and and win the argument versus actually you know trying to get stuff built? Well, there's a lot in that actually. Um, communication is everything, absolutely everything. And I think you hit the nail on the head. And that is part of a commissioner's job, to talk to the people that you're talking to and think, what's what language do you understand? What is important to you? It doesn't matter what's important to me. What's important to you? What enables you to get things done? So, I mean, people talk about politicians needing bravery, but if they say, right, we're going we're, we're gonna to ban traffic from city centres, they've got no job, so they can't do it. So their problem is your problem. So you have to give them ways to make not just the right thing, but how can you sell the right thing? Uh, crossings was a big one a few months ago, and we're still working on it now. The ability to put crossings in at side roads like the rest of the world does, but we don't, excuse me, even though we invented the thing. Uh, but when you talk about, listen, we could do this the standard way that we're allowed now, and it costs £30,000 for every junction that you do, or we could do it with paint and it costs 300 quid. And people don't object to crossings. And they're going, oh, I really like that. So you give them things that they can get behind. Uh, and that's that's been important, uh, really important. And also talking to the right people. So at a political level, they might want to do something. But if you have officers in the mix, so if you've watched Yes Minister, that is 
that is government, that is local government. There's an officer in the mix who doesn't want to do it. They can stop everything because a district leader uh, or even the mayor who's got 100 fires has to deal with, well, which town are going to kill me first? So if somebody's quietly saying, oh, you can't do this for this reason, they don't necessarily have time to dig into the detail. So you've got to change strategies all the way through, but communications and selling the message. And to be blunt, sometimes making not change more frightening than change is uh, is one of the tools that can be used. And that's very much the case at the moment, that people were panicking about doing anything different at the start of this. Don't do anything different. Don't change anything. And now when we're seeing cities around the world, which we'll probably get onto, so your Milan's, your Paris's, your Berlin's going, listen, this is part of our strategy to deal with this, keep people healthy and keep them sane. Um, if you're not doing it, it's starting to get really uncomfortable. So people are going, what do we do? It, we don't want to be seen to be doing nothing. And that's just changing by the day. Do you think just as a broad principle, Chris, the, the kind of the extraordinary leaps of the imagination that the COVID crisis is forcing us all to make ultimately will benefit your project? Because, you know, when the Chancellor stood up, what was it, five weeks ago and said, do you know what we're going to do? We're going to pay 80% of everybody's wage because if we don't, it's a disaster, um, would have been completely unimaginable 30 seconds before he stood up and said that. Um, and some of that kind of, uh, some of that freedom of thought, surely you can, if you can harness it in the right way, when you, when the world does return to normal and you go about your business again, you can say, let's just do it, you know, and, and, and let's forget about the steps of, of logic that we thought we had to take to get to that point. Yeah, timing is is everything, and there's a lot. Um, I think I made the same mistake. I did make the same mistake as everybody else at the start, which is, I've got to do something, I've got to do something. Um, and I even put on social media, there's um, a change curve, uh, and it's generally associated with, with, with the death. And, you know, first of all, there's denial and there's shock and there's blame others, blame self, and it's this curve you go through. And I kidded myself that I was much further along than I actually was. And after the first week, I looked back, and thought, right, take myself out that picture. How is it working? Just the same as it was with when you were there. So I was just making noise. Um, so I, I, that was important for me to understand. And I could see what we could do at the start, but it was the wrong time. It was the wrong time. Everybody had to go through this accepting and getting comfortable with a crisis, as it were, before they could even hear uh, and I think um, that's that's something that you've just got to adapt to day by day at the moment. Um, when people are ready, you can't force it. And there's lots of people who want to do something. So there's actually more noise than ever. Um, so it's, it, it's fascinating. I, I, I'm talking about opportunities. I mean, that's a word I've studiously avoided using because uh, one of the things that upsets people or triggers an emotional response now is anybody seems to be capitalizing on the crisis, even if it's for their own good. You can't do that. So my, even my own team, you're just pulling it back to you. This is about the crisis. If there are long-term benefits, well, that's just a bonus. But right now, if it doesn't tackle one of the problems we've got, we're not doing it. And it just so happens that making space outside shops or getting cars off the pavement so people can stay two metres apart are part of the solution, but they're a legitimate part of it. And then we might choose to keep them later. But it has to be about the crisis right now. Are you part of a consultation with, you mentioned Milan and Berlin and uh, Paris as well. And, uh, and as you say, I think a number of other cities are joining in. Are you? Do you have international contacts there? Chris, are you part of that conversation in Europe? Nope, not at all. Um, and I think I would guess it's the case, and it is just a guess, that there's a lot of people who have just contracted right now. They've gone back to here and now. But what we are is aware of what's going on elsewhere, and we can see it. Uh, and there may very well be people who have the, the bandwidth, if you want to call it that, to actually go and explore elsewhere. There's certainly people in my team that are aware of things that are going on elsewhere, it's particularly elsewhere in the country because that's something that cuts through strongly. If somebody else somewhere in the country is doing something, then I can relate better to that. Uh, I think the international picture, it's benefit to us in terms of making space for people to travel and make essential journeys and uh, an exercise um, is when you get a volume of other places in the world, when everybody else is doing it. I mean, you remember right at the start when they went, Italy's banned anybody going out. We've got to ban everybody going out. Nobody even thought that maybe Italy's got it a little bit wrong. 
Um, and so that's that's an effect I think that is um, that has been used. Seeing what else is going out on, going on in the world uh, on mass. And I guess um, uh, similar about- to what you were oh, similar to what you were saying. Um, he is- had his hand up then. <laughs> Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. We've got a system. I was making, I was making little notes. It's, it's the hand-up system. Sorry. Don't break you, go okay, go on. you go first, Laura. <laughs> go on, Adam. No, I feel bad now. Go on, go on, go on. Um, you talked about uh, creating space, and that's obviously something that people in communities can see very visually, and that's why you know they might be more open-minded to it. Um, and also, I think rightly being careful about the word uh, opportunity uh, uh, for, this, for the same reasons you mentioned. But I guess looking at it from a different angle in terms of air quality, um, something that people do under, you know, increasingly understand, but is still maybe a little bit over the, the general public's heads. Um, you all have seen the, the Harvard University uh, research, um, which is early research and it's based in the US, but showed that an increase of only one micrograms per cubic meter uh, in PM2.5 is associated with a 15% increase in the COVID-19 death rate. And there is some other studies, uh, I think Ned might have mentioned it the other episode about um, you know northern Italy um, looking at how they reduce um, traffic, and that's why Milan has taken that, because of uh, the air quality benefits. So do you think that's going to open up uh, another uh, you know another avenue of conversation or do you think that conversation is already happening at the right level or do you think more people are going to be brought, brought along the journey my opinion is that it's timing again and um, we're only just entering a phase now when we have uh, to use that horrible phrase again the bandwidth headspace to actually start to think a bit bigger and more widely and we're only just getting there uh, at the moment because, I mean, certainly if you think about who's got to implement these decisions, so local councils now are absolutely wetting themselves. They had a system that was didn't realize how fragile it was, uh, and suddenly you've just turned off the cash. Uh, you've turned off the cash, uh, and so they're still in a very high state of stress, and they have to implement stuff. So thinking about the audience, um, that's that's like logical and it, and it's scientific and I can't even hear you now because I've got a massive bill and that's the only thing. If it answers that, I'm listening. If it doesn't answer that, I'll think about that tomorrow. You've got to think about it today. You'll get a better result. Don't care. I can't hear you. Um, so communication now is is more important and more powerful and effective than it ever was. I mean, the most the most effective thing that you could do for um, for for this agenda for a broad term, for this agenda going forward, is have people in positions of power who have nothing to do with this, particularly health, who suddenly has a voice in transport, a really strong voice, say, this is good for our NHS. If people choose to move around this way, as long as you can guarantee that they meet these rules, and that's the most important, that is paramount, if they can meet these rules, this is good for the NHS, and we congratulate people for doing this. And those who are choosing to ride to the hospitals, thank you, well done. That would be tra- more transformative than millions and millions you could put into infrastructure right now. Just let people know it's okay. You've got 1950s levels of traffic. It is going up a little bit, but it's still really low, which is why people have taken it upon themselves to go, and oh, I'll just, I'll go and try that. I'm bored out my tree. Uh, the kids, I can't take them to the park. They can't play with their mates. They could ride a bike. Okay, we'll go out in the streets. That was quite good. Let's go a bit further. And right now, people are experiencing something that they would not have done in any other way. And don't tell them about that. Don't tell them. But let them experience it uh, and then say, right, do you want to keep it? Uh, What about we'll just put some measures in place? So as we get a bit of an increase in traffic, you can still do that. And then when we get to the end of the measures, right, do you want us to keep these measures in place? And they're the conversations that are going on right now because they're not too scary. So how do you Cycling gauge if it's the right time? Oh, sorry, you Paul. You did not your hand up. Oh, I'm so bad at the this game. Sorry. You're boxed out of it again, mate. You're just going to have to learn the, the rules of this game, Laura, because my hand shot up there like the keen kid at the front of the class. Um, Chris, in your mind, there's maybe no scientific answer to this, but I've I've often been struck by, you know, you you obviously come from a cycling background, but the bigger part of your job and your mission is actually walking, isn't it, in 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 Manchester. Um and because it directly affects more people than you're ever going to be able to mobilize or reach with cycling potentially. Um and I see, you know, we focused on cycling as well. 
But actually, it's the numbers of people going out running and just walking as a daily activity for no reason other than to get some fresh air, uh, which is probably more significant. Yeah, walking is um, just the easiest accessible. It's the easy to cater for. You relate to more people. Um, certainly, a vast, vast amount more people can say, that's me. I, I can relate to that. Uh, and just changing uh, what we, you We've probably discussed this before, but there's 250 million car journeys in Greater Manchester every year, less than one kilometre. Uh, and, and a big chunk of those is the school run. So if you ask parents, would you let your kids walk to school? Go, nah, it's just too dangerous. I'll, I'll drop them off. Um, would you like you to be your kids to be able to walk to school? Uh, yes. You're, you're, you'll get yes from the majority of people. So any measures you can put in place to allow that, which makes the parents' life easier as well, uh, are going to be much better supported. What we try to do, we try not to separate cycling and walking in terms of what provision we make, because if you're benefiting one, you're probably going to benefit the other. If you drop speeds, it's safer for people walking. If you put crossings in, it means the cars have to take uh, more care when turning the corner. And so they benefit both modes. But you're right, walking will always reach more people. This is your chance, Laura. This is it. Uh, um, one interesting thing that you've done in, in Manchester is you kind of crowdsourced this network of walking and cycling routes, didn't you? And I wonder if that makes it easier now to have a discussion about what you might start to implement, if not now, then in the nearer future, if it's easier perhaps to bring those those things forward. Well, I mean, it, it's not to contradict myself. Um, Right now, if you want to make provision for people to be able to travel actively during a crisis, to look after their own health, to get to work, all of these things. Because remember, I think it's a third of all Greater Manchester's residents don't have access to a car. And so they use public transport and you don't want them to use public transport. So this is very virus, uh, a virus related activity. So you go, right, what can we do for these people to make a safe space? Where do you want to make the safe space? Hang on, we've already got a plan here. Uh, and so it, it does fit together. It might change the order in which you do things. So we may choose to do um, active neighbourhoods much more quickly. Now I have we have power. We actually always had powers, but we've also we've got more um, motivation right now. And some emergency powers were required that allow you to go and put stuff in and consult afterwards. So even using emergency measures, we can say right, we're going to pedestrianise these streets and we're going to do it next week. Uh, and then you, you you notify people really, um, and it's not a way of sneaking something in because if people don't like it, then you have to take it out again. But it's a way for you to put it in and let people experience it, and then you can consult on something that's actually happened and tell them about the pollution levels and tell them about how many people were using their street on foot, uh, and accident rates have gone down, and then say, do you want to keep it? So the, the, it does all tie together, but it must address the problem that we have immediately not be about the future. Has that actually happened, Chris? Have you have you pedestrianised streets? Have you used those powers? Are there concrete examples? I mentioned timing. And um, now is the time when looking around the world, to be, to be brutally honest, people are going, loads of people are doing stuff. We're not doing anything. It's a bit uncomfortable. Um, so it's pushed up, up the agenda. So we had a meeting last week with the leaders of Greater Manchester uh, and some of their transport leads and the mayor. And we said, right, do we want to do something? And everybody said, yep, we do. Um, very quickly. So now this is unprecedented. Within a few days, people have gone away to put together an emergency action plan. And a lot of it is the stuff we've just been talking about. Excuse me. And then we're reconvening this week to go, right, this is what we're going to do in this area. This is what we're going to do in this area. So it's going to happen within two weeks. I can't tell you the detail because I don't know it yet. Um, but some of it I've already seen is pretty bold, uh, which is great. That's really exciting. So the time is right now. It's after after the kind of initial shock phase and the acceptance phase is perhaps where we're at now. Well, you've noticed if you if you you, you all follow the media, your work in the media, and you, you you can see the conversations that are happening, the articles that are being written, and everybody's starting to look forward. Uh, now, first of all, I think people were hoping they started to use the term recovery as in, right, we're going to turn the switch and it's all going to start recovering. And in the last 24, 48 hours, people have been disabused of that view, said, we're with this, we're in it for the long term, for the foreseeable future. That's a hell of a phrase. For the foreseeable future, we'll have distancing measures. Uh, we need to live with that. So everyone's gone, right, okay. So all this emergency stuff, 
is actually worth giving attention to because it's not going to be gone in a couple of weeks. What a waste of time that was. It's actually going to be here for months and months. All right, now this is worth getting into. So it has changed and people have started to think about what does that look like? So that's a time when you can start to say, well, it could look like this. And here's why that would be good for you. Uh, but most of the time, most importantly and, and excitingly, is that people are coming the other way and saying, we want to do something. We're considering doing this. What do you think? And that's, that's a much better place to be when, when it's the, the, the residents uh, and the people who run an area are driving the agenda. Are you finding that in Manchester, that, that people are sort of asking for this? Yes. Yeah. And, and just about now, councillors are saying that we want to do something. There's some leaders have said we want to do something. We need to understand what we can do. Um, um, and the mayor has taken an active interest now. Um, uh, and so really, he's leading on it uh, and I'm helping him. Whereas it was the other way around when it was part of a raft of measures that had equal priority. Now this is becoming more and more important. The, the mayor, who is the transport portfolio holder for Greater Manchester, uh, is starting to get in front of it. And all that's great. Yeah, I think more people are realising, aren't they, as they're walking and cycling more, quieter roads are so much more pleasant to use. And also these kind of extreme speeders that we're seeing. I think police in London have been telling me that they feel like speeding has come up the agenda and they're getting more attention now because, yeah, people are on the roads and starting to realise that, you know, the dangers these pose and perhaps the need for protected road space coming off of the back of that. The, pol the policing part of it uh, is, unfortunately, it's something you need to address, but it isn't just the police. They're, they've got massively depleted numbers, as we know, and we're starting to realise what that means. And it isn't just them, it's the judicial system behind them. So, you know, when somebody can routinely say, just put their hand up and say, uh, oh, yeah, um, hardship, special hardship, okay, you've got 20 points, but, but carry on then because you wouldn't be able to take your mother to the shops or whatever it was. So whilst those things are in place, it gets difficult. They're on the agenda now. I mean, what was it, 15 deaths we've had in one month, uh, people riding bikes, which is well above the average, uh, when traffic is down by as much as 60%. So that shouldn't be the case. Uh, so speed is an issue. I think one of the things that we've looked at, if we can target things in, in each district, we then have a more focused area to start getting policing in there uh, as well, so we can coordinate everything. But it's an ongoing issue, I think. Uh, and pessimistically, I don't think we're going to solve it in, in a matter of months. How do we stop the uh, the influx of um, interest that's going to be around the private motor vehicle? I guess that that potentially has the uh, scope to undo a lot of the positive work that's been done over many years, but also in the short term. Um, you talk about communication being key. We all know that communication is key uh, in this in this group. Um, but we, uh, you know, cities struggle to communicate with their residents in the same way that car brands can take out big billboards and TV adverts to show that this is the safest way to get around. Have you got any thoughts on that, Chris? Well, the motor lobby is quiet at the moment, um, uh, and rightly so, because I think everybody recognises, um, from a commercial point of view, the danger right now. I mean, the, the chance of, of damaging a business right, right now is really high if you are seen in any way to try and capitalise on what's going on. So everybody's quite quiet at the moment, um, and rightly so. So for me, that's one of the biggest things that um, I'm taking to local leaders and councils is making them aware of the threat here. So I mentioned before, so just, just to double back slightly and tie this into, into the, uh, the crisis and crisis measures, a third of GM residents don't, or households don't have access to a car. They rely on public transport. You don't want to use them. So they're finding other ways to get around uh, and cycle use as a mode because all journeys have dropped because the places people want to go to were closed. So all journeys have dropped. But as a mode, cycling is up more than two and a half times and rising at the moment as people find different ways to get to work. So I lent a bike to a local nurse who, who works at Chester Hospital and he used to use Mersey Rail, which is really surprisingly around here. Excellent. It's fixed the most reliable service in the country. But it stops running at seven o'clock at night now. So he's riding to work and back. So I, I lend him one of our electric bikes and, and this guy is one of many that is choosing to go to work by bike or choosing to work. In Greater Manchester, the average commute, the average commute of everybody is less than five kilometers. 
So that's a bit too far to walk every day, but it's a leisurely 20 minutes on a bike. So you've got this. You can show that people are choosing to do it organically. You're not telling them to. They're just going out and doing it. We know it's a good thing. People are now aware of the lower pollution and what their neighborhoods are like. So now we can say, listen, there's evidence around the world that people are starting to emerge from lockdown are seeing a huge shift back to cars to even higher levels than they had before. Uh, unless we do something right now, that's going to happen here. So the threat of inaction is, is as bi- at least as big as the threat of doing something different right now. Uh, and that's why we're seeing a flurry of action, which is good. But that will happen. It will absolutely happen. We've seen it after things like bombings, both in London and Manchester. Uh, confidence in public transport goes down, and it takes quite a long time to recover. Uh, so public transport is something that we all want. But anybody who can get in a car, I think it's 54% of license holders in the UK uh, don't have a car. Uh, and, and evidence is that they're now thinking about it for these reasons. So if you don't get in front of this in the next days and weeks, then that's what's going to happen. I've always believed, Chris, that um, rightly or wrongly, that that's one of the most powerful influences on behaviour in terms of encouraging people onto bikes is... Uh, is is uh, peer pressure in the sense that if you go to work and there's 20 of you in an office and there's one person in the corner of the room who cycles into work, that one person can be a very, very potent introduction to cycling. That seeding of individual cyclists, if you like, um, across across communities and, and especially in, in corporations where, you know, there are multiples of people working in the same place is possibly one of the one of the biggest single sort of influences we can, we can have. It absolutely blows my mind that that uh, a, a close family member of mine works uh, for St Thomas Guys and St Thomas's Hospital Trust in the centre of London, in the community, and that their collection of nurses hitherto have been provided with a fleet of cars to get around congested central London, and not once has the human resources department of uh, St Thomas's Guys and St Thomas's ever thought of scrapping this fleet of cars, or maybe retaining one or two and giving every single member of their staff a bike for free, you know, or, or at a very low cost. But it, but all it takes is sort of one person with a bit of a vision in all these in all these institutions and corporations to start shifting it, and that could be a real snowballing effect that might arguably be even more uh, potent in the medium term than um, segregated cycle lanes and all that massively expensive infrastructure. I'm wondering how much of your time and effort uh, going forward is it will be taken up with sort of identifying these key personnel and putting them in place and convincing them. Well, I think there's, um, I mean, there's, there's peer pressure and there's and peer example. So, you know, it's pedantically the same thing, to be honest, isn't it? Um, and as far so as when you're telling me about um, a human resource department providing cars, I'm thinking in our culture, they're not going to stop doing that because if I give you a bike, I am now responsible for you being on that bike. And if you have an accident, you can come back on because we're comfortable with cars. We're comfortable with those. So this is different and it's just easier for me. But if lots of people start to ride to work and they start to talk to their colleagues about it and say, do you know, it only took me 35 minutes. You're joking. It only took 35 minutes. Yeah, it's dead easy. You just go along this canal path there and, okay, I might give that a go. And they give it a go. And that can happen quite quickly. And at the moment, since we've got months in this state, it's exactly the kind of thing that is happening. And that's a way to change behavior. But we've never had the space to give people the opportunity to try traveling differently that we have right now. Uh, And that's why it's so important. And you're dead right about infrastructure. Infrastructure is a signal of of you failed. Your system has failed because I have to keep you apart because if I don't, you're going to kill you. And and, uh, and and so it's just managing a bad situation infrastructure. Um, that's the way I see it. I mean, you want streets that are used, and, and you prioritise those those that you travelling in the way that you value the most, which is you know lots of European countries where they have presumed liability. So I think that example is really powerful. And as you were talking, I was remembering working in Glasgow on the European Championships with a group from the BBC, and we were about two miles out from the centre where we wanted to go to eat every night. Nice river in the middle, as you know. And there's some higher bikes there. And I saw them. I thought, oh, that's quite good. I don't know how to use them. So I walked in. And uh, another day, we all got in a car and somebody asked, you know, who's going to drive with the minibus? Who's going to drive the minibus? And then eventually I went, oh, just download this app. I'll give it a go. 
oh, that was really good. I really like that. And then some, I said, I'm riding in. And somebody says, oh, are you? How'd you do that then? I'm showing them the app while we're having a beer in the bar. And they go, oh, down, how'd you download it? And they're downloading it. And then the next day, two or three of us did it. And then the next day, everybody traveled in that way. But it was so subtle and so scarily simple for none of us to have done it that it took one person to try it and then two or more to two more to follow and then it became normal because it was easier and it was pleasant and a good laugh. And on the fourth day, it pissed with rain and you all got back in the cars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that can happen too. Um, Chris, just, just going back onto your time um, actually post-racing uh, when you were still working with British Cycling and you were part of the the cycling community will understand this term, the, the the secret squirrel club in which you kind of investigated technology in cycling and performance uh, improvements with aerodynamics and stuff. You were given um, a decent budget and lots of freedom to basically try some pretty mad stuff, weren't you? And re- really kind of um, uh, experiment in the freest sense of the word. And you had a great deal of autonomy amongst you. So you, you didn't have many people to be answerable to, especially if you kept coming up with good ideas. Um, I would imagine the bureaucracy that you have to contend with and the price tag attached to everything that you do here must be frustrating uh, for you at times, having come from that, that background where you had so much, so much autonomy. Well, that's a brilliant question, and people aren't going to be uh, believe that um, that it wasn't planted because I learned something in a wind tunnel that actually led to how we did the B network. Because we spent the first four year cycle, uh, my cunning plan was we're going to get a group of experts together and keep this information really secret, and then when we found good stuff, take it back to the team and go, "There you go, this is how you do it." Uh, and I tried to do exactly that, and I found that. Um, I mean, I, I could go into the story of sitting in the stands in Appledore, one of the World Cup uh, qualifiers for the Olympic Games, sat in the stand having given people some information about helmets, sat in the stand and watched them compete, and 80% of them carried on doing exactly what they were doing before. Uh, and I, in my uh, well, arrogance and, and ignorance, I completely missed the fact that these people had spent blood, sweat, and tears to try and do the right thing for years. And then somebody stepped in and said, don't do it that way, do it this way. And even with evidence, uh, they they were so stressed about doing this thing and qualifying for the Olympics, they'll stick to what we know and what we've worked out because you can't feel air resistance. 20% of the people had changed behavior, and they were the ones that helped us with the experiments. So that was when a light bulb went on, and we went back to the wind tunnel, and we cut a hole in the ceiling, put an overhead projector there, put live data on the floor in any language that the athletes wanted to, so it might be time-saving an event, watts of power, whatever they wanted, brought the whole Olympic squad down one by one to the wind tunnel and just let them play. So we let them see it for themselves. And then we started asking questions of, you thought about riding in this position, see what happens. You thought about trying this, see what happens. Why don't you try this, see what happens. And everybody then fell in line because it belonged to them. Now, I mean, genuinely, this is not a manufactured story. What is it, 10 years later, uh, there was an engineer called Brian Deegan who works very closely with me. Um, and he's, well, he's originally from Moss Side in Manchester, but worked in London. Uh, and Brian is very good, very good. At, he's better communicator and a salesman, frankly, than, than he is even an engineer. Um, and he said, let's just get the people from the councils in a room and give them some pens. And he said, let's just, uh, they can choose who's in the room. doesn't matter. It's entirely up to them. It's their show. And just bring a map of their area. And then he said, right, where can't you go right now? Where, where wouldn't you go with uh, uh, to R2 standards? If you were pushing a double buggy with kids or you, were, you had a 12-year-old, where would you not let them go? Where would you not like to go? And they all sort of drew it down. And there was, the, you know, railway lines, but mostly big roads and things. Okay. Well, what about these other roads? And they all went, oh, yeah, they're quite quiet. Well, why don't you? Why don't you use those? Oh, because I get to the end of the road and then I hit this. Okay. Well, what about if we got you across that? Okay. And what about if we get you across the next one? Okay. So show me where all these crossings should be. And they drew on the map. And within an hour and a half, each of the the districts in Manchester produced their own plan. Uh, And almost every meeting was, was similar. And you got to about an hour and a half and you could see them stand back and go, bloody hell, this is doable, isn't it? And that's how we did it. We didn't tell them. We let them hold the pen. And if they'd chosen to do nothing, we'd have done nothing. Uh, and, and I think that was, um, I didn't realize at the time, one of the most valuable life lessons that I had really is that 
It's not my choice whether they do something. My job is to ask the best questions, not have the best answers. Just on um, just on the idea of um, testing and learning, which I guess was Ned, Ned was saying about British cycling, and um, I think generally the public sector, um, or at least a stereotype of the public sector, is uh, potentially you know a lot slower than than some of the great ideas that you just come up with and just gone and done. And that must be quite surprising to people that have been in, you know, in the public sector for a long time. But when it comes to the bigger pieces, I'm thinking about your, your pedestrian crossings and that gets you in a situation where you have to then pay 250,000 pounds to a, to a research organization because the department of transport won't, you know, won't go on this journey with you. How, how much of a hindrance are, you know, things like that to the progression that, you know, is there stay, you know, staring us in the face? Well, a hindrance is exactly right. And this is where I think comms works in both directions, really. What we wanted to do, just to recap, is put crossings at the mouth of side roads, which is how they do it all around the world, all over Europe, uh, and it works. And in fact, people don't even realize it. You pretty much, every time you go to a supermarket, you're using one. There's no zigzag lines and there's no uh, Belisha beacon. So it's classed as an implied zebra crossing. It's not recognized as a, as a legal marking if you just use those stripes on their own. And so we looked at what was happening in Europe and said, wow, that would be great if we did that. And the Department of Transport says, no, we can't do that. It could be dangerous. So we went to see them and said, if we do this by raising the curb and other methods, it costs thirty to £50,000 a junction. But if we use paint, it costs 300 quid, and I can do an entire estate in a week. So I think that's great. And all over the world, they're doing it. And all around the UK, it's happening. And it seems to work. So can we do it? And they said, no, it could be dangerous. I said, okay, well, let's do some trials then and prove it's safe, if that is the case can't let you do a trial because it could be dangerous. And I, 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 I think I literally looked around the room and I thought, is, is, this some, is this a joke? It was embarrassing. So the Department for Transport wrote to the Manchester districts, um, making it very clear that they did not support this. And understandably, all the Manchester districts who were ready to go went, okay, stop down tools, we're not doing it. So I went to meet all the heads of highways and said, right, what's the score? And they said, right, little Johnny has been run over on one of these crossings and his mother's suing us because he said, you gave him a false sense of security by putting that there uh, and I'm in the dock. And the, the person prosecuting me is saying, right, so you went against DFT advice to put this mark in. So I said, fair enough. That is, that is a legitimate concern and uh, we've got to address it. How about if we engage uh, a learned research body and get them to run a study for us? And they looked around the room and they went, yeah, because they wanted to do this. They could see the value, but they were stuck. They were going to be left responsible and, and in the dock, possibly literally if it went wrong. Yeah, that would work. Okay. And we only go forward if the evidence says yes. So we engaged the Transport Research Laboratory in the end. It's the most respected agency in the country. Um, and they're doing a multi-phased piece of research. So the first big chunk is finished, which was here's a load of different types of markings, including a zebra marking with no zigzags, please. Do you recognize them? I think it was 90% of people said, yes, I know what that mark means. I don't know what those squiggles are. Uh, and so they showed that this worked on its own. The next stage is uh, simulator trials. So you get a load of people in and you put them on the simulator. I've had a go with this simulator um, about two months ago. And you, you drive around a street, looks very realistic. And you, you don't tell people why they're there and you see how they react. And then assuming that goes well, then you go and put some on the road and the spots are already identified and then you studied them for a few weeks. Unfortunately, we got to stage two and this happened, which has stopped us. Um, but we are really close to, to going to trials, um, in my opinion, assuming the middle bit had, had worked and people knew what zebra crossings meant. Um, so that's, that's kind of where we were and that's how we get across that kind. Of, if you've got the evidence to go back to communications, if you have the evidence, uh, you, you can find a way forward if it's the right thing to do. And the Department for Transport sits on this group as well. And they're not comfortable because it's going to contradict everything I've been saying. But the evidence is there. And we are, well, we are forcing them to look at the evidence because they didn't go here willingly. I think that's reasonable. So they didn't go here. And personally, I'm quietly seething about it because I'm spending a year demonstrating, trying to demonstrate that crossings make crossing the roads safer. 
And if the minister had chosen to write a piece uh, on a piece of paper, which is in his gift, we could have just gone and done the trial straight away in a very responsible way. And we could have had all of these things in place right now. Um, so I, I think it's outrageous. But they're the rules uh, and we're finding a way around it. And um, I, I went to the uh, Transport Research Laboratory uh, with you, Chris. Oh, well, I met you there. And, uh, and they had an implied zebra in the car park outside. Outside the front door. <laughs> outside the front door. <laughs> you couldn't make it up. <laughs> you could have just um, stuck a camera there and just see what happens. Um, but you've got something like 20,000 side streets, haven't you, in Manchester? So this is a huge amount of money you could save, you know, if they are proven safe. And I think I was looking at, I wrote a city metric piece after going to Bracknell with you to the Transport Research Laboratory. I think it was 94% of people recognised the crossing. So, and, and and they do have, they, well, you know, it's even, yeah, they do have these across Europe. And Brian Deegan was there, your technical advisor, who is brilliant. And he, he does talk about this in a very kind of engaging way. And he was telling me, you know, you could walk across Paris without having to stop because of these zebra crossings. And apparently the UK has the greatest uh, pedestrian wait times of almost anywhere in the world, which is astonishing. So the kind of difference this could make is huge. When we got into doing this podcast, I um, I very... Didn't think you were going to be talking about zebra crossings. I literally, I almost forbade it as a conversation. You know, Adam wanted to talk about curb design and all this kind of hyper-technical stuff. And I said, I ain't going there. It's not going to happen. It'll... But having said that, <laughs> I've, I've, I'm sitting here and I suddenly feel massively engaged in the subject because, Chris, listening to what you say, and I've never, by the way, I've never seen you so angry about anything and I've known you for flipping ages as well. So something's clearly rattled you there. I think the bit that upset me the most, uh, I, I mean, caution is part of a system. Uh, and, and conversely, I actually quite like the take the fact, it sounds ridiculous, that it takes time to get things done because it doesn't allow somebody to turn up and do a, a load of damage and to do stupid things. Um, and, and it protects us from uh, a lot of the politics that there's a, there's a process to go through. So bureaucratic just doesn't always mean bad. What upset me was we're not even going to look. And that, that upset me, the fact that this is happening all over the world and no, we're not even going to do a trial and that's wrong. And I, I personally think somebody should be held accountable for that. And, and I think the reason you're kind of uh, so excited about this, uh, Ned, is that it does make a massive difference to your life. And I think once you start to think about it, then it does. And I've got some some colleagues from uh, from Europe who talk about coming to the UK and the pedestrian environment being so hostile that they, you know, they regularly cross the road thinking that they might die. And, you know, you take it for granted. You walk around your neighborhood, your your town where you live, your city, and you just think, well, this is the way things are. You know, you run out of the way of traffic and, and that's just how it is. And it's only kind of in these situations or, you know, when we have less traffic on the road or when you start to think about these issues, how important it is. I think uh, Jeanette Sadiq Khan, the former transportation commissioner of New York City, she said that when she was thinking about what career to pursue, I think it was her grandmother that said, you know, you can either do transportation or sanitation if you want to help help people in a fundamental way. And she chose, you know, the former. But because it does make a huge difference to people's lives. You are about to become the second professional cyclist or former professional cyclist I've ever posed this question to. The first one was Lance Armstrong. So you're in great company. Um, I asked Lance Armstrong at the beginning of the 2004 Tour de France whether or not he would consider one day becoming the president of the United States of America. And he kind of hedged his, he hedged his bets a little bit and gave me a bit of an um, ambiguous answer. So I'm going to ask you the similar question, probably not about America, but where do you, have you, do you harbour political ambitions wider than your remit as the commissioner in Manchester? You have made an appearance on Question Time where you got a bit Brexity or anti-Brexity at one point. So you have dabbled with um, areas outside of your direct remit. And would you, would you consider doing that one day? Um, well, you didn't fully define what it is, but um, if, if it's getting into <laughs> politics. Yes, um, I suppose it is. I suppose it is. Yeah, no, I wouldn't know. Um, I mean... And we, we did talk earlier on about careers and I've never had a career, I've never aspired to one and I don't think further ahead than two years because just too much stuff happens to, I think, for me to believe in anything past that. Uh, what I can see at the moment is I would like this to work, I would like it to be taken up nationally and I want to do stuff, I want to make something uh, and help make something that, that makes a difference. 
Uh, and if that happens nationally, brilliant. Um, if I can help with that, I would. But I think at the moment, I'm still doing my apprenticeship in Greater Manchester uh, and learning an awful lot about local government and, and health processes and things that you, you simply can't go around and you have to do. And what you can ignore, frankly, as well, uh, there's a lot of noise and people in a system. But if you just push the button at the right place and say the right thing, you can cut through all of that. That's all part of the learning as well. So I, I honestly don't know where I've been two years, but I'm, I feel an absolute obligation to get this job done first. Well, more power to you, Chris. And uh, thanks very much for your time. Um, thank you also to Adam. Thank you to Laura. And Laura, you've got until now, uh, we record our next one to brush up on your hand, hand raising technique. Um, but it's, uh, no, it's been really fascinating, Chris. Thanks very much for all your insights. You've been listening to Streets Ahead. Thanks once again to our guest, Chris Boardman. And thank you for listening. Do let us know what you think. We are at Pod Streets Ahead on Twitter or email us at hello at streetsaheadpod.com. Finally, wherever you're listening, please do rate and review the podcast. It helps people to find us. Until next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.